right, number eight, The Decay. The Didache is one of, if not the earliest non-canonical documents we have from the early church. It's pretty short. It deals with Christian living, the sacraments, the church, and kind of church government. Didache means teaching. You can hear the word didactic in there. Its longer title is the Lord's teaching through the 12 apostles to the nations. So when you see the cover of the Didache, like on a book or something, you'll often see the 12 apostles depicted. The Didache talks about how to receive prophets and apostles, how to judge prophets. I always find that language interesting in the early church as it can present a kink in the cessationist narrative. A charismatic would say the same thing. We judge the prophets. Paul says the same thing, which kind of shows that prophets are not always infallible. I know people are going to lose their mind over that, but there's no way to categorize a prophet as infallible all the time and also affirm that where Paul says you judge the prophets, you know, you judge them. So the DDK carries on that language. It also talks about Christians who come to a church but don't work, that idle men are to be avoided. He says, watch that you keep aloof from such. So we have this excommunication or non-association carried on here, which is prominent in the New Testament, and it's basically altogether ignored in churches today. He instructs his readers to give support to prophets and teachers, but he says that prophets who ask for money are false prophets. I'm not sure that's exactly the sign of a false prophet, but perhaps it was an accurate indicator uh, at the time. It also connects the tithe given to priests in the Old Testament to giving a tithe to prophets and teachers in the Messianic age, the age that we live in now. He says, but every true prophet that wills to abide among you is worthy of his support. So also a true teacher is himself worthy as the workman of his support. Every first fruit, therefore, of the products of winepress and threshing floor, of oxen and of sheep, you shall take and give to the prophets, for they are your high priests. So he uses the term first fruit, and scripture connects the tithes and the first fruits together, though it may be debated that they are separate. Either way, the point is that ministers in the new covenant are given support from the people. This, I would argue, is commanded by Christ himself, and then it's reiterated by Paul. Also of note is that from the beginning, we have the comparison made of teachers and prophets to priests and that they should receive support from the people. The term high priest is used here, and I would not use that term. I would object to that. I would reserve that solely for Christ as our high priest, our Melchizedekian priest. But I don't have a problem with the role of elders, prophets, and teachers being similar to that of Levites. I think it's kind of undeniable that they, they share a similar kind of function. And that doesn't mean that we are going back to the old order. We're not. We're functioning in the new covenant order where animal sacrifices and things and, and the kind of Jewish distinctives of the law have been fulfilled in Christ, but still the exposition of the word, the ministration of the temple is still relevant to the church age. And Paul makes this comparison. This isn't something made out of whole cloth. It's certainly extrapolated and expanded in the early church. But he exhorts the Corinthians to support those who labor as ministers of the gospel, just as the Israelites supported those who labored in the temple, the Levites. He makes this comparison. So as for function, ministers of the gospel, I would argue, are new covenant form of, of Levites. Then we have this great passage, which kind of throws a wrench into the apostolic succession narrative. He tells his readers to appoint for themselves bishops and deacons. It's a congregational appointment, a bottom-up appointment, not a top-down. He says, therefore, appoint for yourselves bishops and deacons worthy of the Lord, men meek and not lovers of money, and truthful and proven. For they also rendered to you the service of prophets and teachers 
Despise them not, therefore, for they are your honored ones, together with the prophets and teachers, and reprove one another, not in anger, but in peace, as you have it in the gospel. But to every one that acts amiss against one another, let no one speak, nor let him hear anything from you until he repents. <laughs> okay, so again, top-down appointments are permissible, and we see this in Paul's appointment of Timothy and Titus. And in the case of Titus, Titus then turns around and appoints elders. So that's a kind of more what we would conceive as kind of like a bishopric. But here we have a congregational appointment, and I believe either form is valid. I think that the ecclesiastical governance of the church is flexible enough to adapt to the times. That doesn't mean that I'm a subjectivist or a relativist. I just think that God permitted the church to adapt to the, the particular needs of the congregations that the gospel comes to. Notice, too, that the concern here is for holiness of life, truthful and proven, not lovers of money. The emphasis in Roman and Eastern circles, from my experience, it's anecdotal, but to me, it seems very less. It's a diminishment of the holiness of life. It's an emphasis on the apostolic tactile ordination, and that trumps everything for them. But to me, when I see the scriptures, and then even here in the Didache, the emphasis is on being qualified with your habit of life. And so you have guys like Father James Martin and, and others who I would say are not proven. They're heretics, or they skirt the line of it at least. And those men are not worthy of being elders in the church. We also have him saying that the bishops and deacons render to the people the service of prophets and teachers. And I think this is true too that elders function as teachers of the word and prophets of the word. And we can take that in the Puritan conception of preaching, where it's just the prophet is an expositor of the scriptures. Or we can take it in the charismatic conception, where there's kind of more intuitive or maybe supernatural aspects involved with the prophetic ministry. I think both are valid. Prophets are lawyers of the law. They bring covenantal cases and they remind the people of their covenantal obligations. This would be more of a Puritan approach. But they can also be instructed by the Spirit by means of visions, dreams, and things like this. Now, those dreams and visions are supplemental to Scripture. They are subordinate authorities. But Jesus says that he's going to send us the Spirit. He says that our old men will dream dreams and young men will see visions, things like this. And that's a prophetic gifting. And those things can be helpful in bringing us to fuller understandings of things. And all of those things have to submit to and be in concert with Scripture. As much as we don't like that, as much as that seems to be dangerous, simply prioritizing Scripture as the norming norm of these prophetic giftings resolves the problem. And if they don't norm to the norming norm of Scripture, then those prophets are false prophets easy day. Okay, here we also have another exhortation to excommunicate those who act amiss. Those who are unrepentant are not to be spoken to until they repent. Notice too, he's speaking to a congregation that doesn't have elders, not yet at least, and he tells them to reprove one another, and he instructs them to exercise disassociation with the unrepentant, right? He makes it individual, he puts the responsibility on the people. Let no one speak, nor let him hear anything from you until he repents. It's strong disassociation language. Don't speak to these who are disorderly, who are in unrepentant sin, until they repent. I've often seen people just say, that's the job of the church, or they just relegate it to this ecclesiastical realm. 
But God's kingdom is bigger than simply our assemblies on Sunday. It permeates all of life. And so we are responsible as ministers of the gospel to exercise these, these commands that are given to us. This is a casting out of the camp, a removal of the leaven from the lump. This is clearly given to us in canonical writings, and it's just reaffirmed here. And I bring it up because of how little attention we pay to this in the modern church. It is such a fundamental thing in giving the church its power, in receiving covenantal favor from God. And when we don't do it, we're just powerless, which is what the church is now. It's essentially powerless. Uh, we don't. We are the tail and not the head. And so we have to give more recognition and practice to the teachings of Paul and Jesus. And then what's reaffirmed here throughout all of church history, right from the beginning here in the D to K. One of the more famous aspects is the sacramental things. People who are in history are usually very interested in, the, in how the sacraments were administered in the early church. And that can be kind of an unhealthy obsession sometimes. But it's good to kind of see what was done there. It, it does help with understanding things that are in scripture as well. And so he writes this, And concerning baptism, baptize this way, Having first said all these things, baptize into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, in living water. But if you have not living water, baptize into other water. And if you cannot in cold, in warm. But if you have not either, pour out water thrice upon the head, into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. But before the baptism, let the baptizer fast, and the baptized, and whatever others can. But you shall order the baptized to fast one or two days before. Okay, so he affirms the Trinitarian formula for baptism, which I would likewise affirm. He prioritizes baptizing in living water, which I think it's generally agreed that this is a river. I don't think that this is necessary, and I wouldn't actually prioritize it, but it's certainly lawful and people like to do it that way. Also of note, baptism in a river doesn't entail full immersion either. We eisegete that into these readings and Baptists do that with the scriptures as well. The earliest paintings we have of John the Baptist baptizing Jesus in the Jordan uh, are not full immersion. What we see is Jesus standing in the water with John pouring water over his head. The DDK then says, if you're not able to baptize in a river, then you can use other water. Perhaps he means a pond or a lake. He prefers cold to warm, which is interesting. And then he recommends pouring water three times on the head, which is how I prefer to do it and have done it. And there's reasons for that that we won't get into here, but it's because I prioritize scripture and the scriptural case for that, I think, is the effusion argument. The pouring out is, I think, the most powerful imagery for baptism. There's instructions to fast beforehand. We see that in the early church. Fasting is practiced a lot, especially before baptism in the Eucharist. Now, I don't think that these things can be made necessary as we have no clear commands to do these things in scripture, but we see that certain churches try to carry on these traditions to this day, which is fine as long as it's not mandatory. Now, concerning the thanksgiving, which is the Eucharist, thus give thanks. First, concerning the cup, we thank you, our Father, for the holy vine of David, your servant, which you made known to us through Jesus, your servant. To you be the glory forever. And concerning the broken bread, we thank you, our Father, for the life and knowledge which you made known to us through Jesus, your servant. To you be the glory forever. Even as this broken bread was scattered over the hills and was gathered together and became one, so let your church be gathered together from the ends of the earth into your kingdom. For yours is the glory and the power through Jesus Christ forever. But let no one eat or drink of your thanksgiving, but they who have been baptized in the name of the Lord. For concerning this also, the Lord has said, give not what is holy to dogs. 
So there's a few things to note here. The prayers of thanksgiving are not the same as the prayers that we see in Roman Catholic and other so-called apostolic churches. So here is one of many liturgical examples of variants that the early church has with traditions like Rome. Dom Gregory Dix catalogs this, that the early church was varied quite a bit in its, its liturgical prayers and things like this. And here's one example of that. We also have this prayer for the gathering of the church from the ends of the earth into God's kingdom. It's kind of a vision of the kingdom's expansion on the earth. There's also an emphasis on unity, which is a huge theme throughout the early church. We also see that the Eucharist is not to be given to those who have not been baptized, which I think is good. Baptism is entrance into the church. Baptism is the formal remission of our sins. We are united to Christ in baptism. We are made new covenant members of Israel through it. The Eucharist is the new covenant Passover meal. And in the old covenant, one had to be circumcised in order to eat of the Passover meal. We're given explicit instructions that sojourners who wanted to partake of it had to become Israelites in order to partake of it. I think you have an analog in the New Covenant with baptism and the Lord's Supper. And similar, I think, restrictions can be made from good and necessary consequence, to quote the Westminster Confession. This and many other reasons are sufficient enough to deny communion to those who are not formally recognized as being the people of God. Or as it is put here in the Didache, dogs. <laughs> it's not very, not very PC. Don't give what is holy to dogs. And then there's this great prayer after communion that he records for us. He says, but after you are filled, thus give thanks. We thank you, Holy Father, for your holy name, which you caused a tabernacle in our hearts. And for the knowledge and faith and immortality, which you have made known to us through Jesus, your servant, to you be the glory forever. You, Master Almighty, created all things for your name's sake. You gave food and drink to men for enjoyment, that they might give thanks to you. But to us you freely gave spiritual food and drink and life eternal through your servant. Before all things we thank you that you are mighty. To you be the glory forever. Remember, Lord, your church, to deliver it from all evil and to make it perfect in your love, and gather it from the four winds, sanctified for your kingdom which you have prepared for it. For yours is the power and the glory forever. Let grace come and let this world pass away. Hosanna to the God of David. If anyone is holy, let him come. If anyone is not so, let him repent. Maranatha, amen. But permit the prophets to make thanksgiving as much as they desire. Okay. So these prayers entail a whole lot of thanksgiving, which is what Eucharist means. We also see that there's mention of individual heart salvation affirmed here that this isn't an evangelical innovation. He says, We thank you, Holy Father, for your holy name, which you caused to tabernacle in our hearts. We also see the affirmation of creation. The early fathers are often criticized for being too ascetic, and perhaps this is true in some cases, but I have found that the early fathers often affirm the goodness of creation and the goodness of enjoyment of creation. Here in this prayer, we have precisely that. He says, you, Master Almighty, created all things for your namesake. You gave food and drink to men for enjoyment that they may give thanks to you. That doesn't sound very ascetic. That is a response of gratitude for God's good gifts to us. He then goes on to say that God gives us spiritual food as well and eternal life through Christ, right? So there's this connection of the kind of sacramental spiritual food and, and the immortality that we get through Christ. He's giving scripted prayers here, but then he says, permit the prophets to make thanksgiving as much as they desire. So I take this to mean that prophets 
at the time were better at extemporaneous prayer. And here he permits extemporaneous thanksgiving and prayer after the Eucharist. So more freedom is in mind here than what we would see in kind of higher liturgical circles. So that's the benefit of maybe kind of some of these resource movements where we're going back to the early church and, and the scriptures, because we see that there is more freedom there. And this is, I would say, a charismatic aspect as well, where not only charismatic, but you see this in, in most other churches that aren't rigidly liturgical, where extemporaneous prayers are permitted to be given. And particularly in a charismatic sense, there is this idea that extemporaneous prayers can be be more spirit-filled. Of course, deliberate, prepared, scripted prayers can also be spirit-filled, maybe even more so. The spirit could work in both of these ways, but my point is to show that there's freedom in the liturgy that he's giving here to the prophets to extemporaneously give thanks. Okay, uh, he talks about Christian assembly on the Lord's Day. He says, but every Lord's Day, gather yourselves together and break bread and give thanksgiving after having confessed your transgressions that your sacrifice may be pure. But let no one that is at variance with his fellow come together with you until they be reconciled, that your sacrifice may not be profaned. For this is that which was spoken by the Lord. In every place and time offer to me a pure sacrifice. For I am a great king, says the Lord, and my name is wonderful among the nations. So we have here Christians gathering together on the Lord's Day, which is Sunday, the breaking of bread, which is generally considered the Eucharist, and we see the confessions of sins and its connection to a pure sacrifice. This close language of Eucharist and sacrifice is everywhere in the early fathers, and also the connection to Malachi's prophecy, which I think is alluded to here, but it's not an exact quotation. You see that often in the fathers. Sometimes they'll quote things that simply aren't scripture, or it's just kind of a, a strange allusion to it. I mean, in some ways, you kind of see this even in the New Testament. Sometimes it's from the Septuagint, or perhaps with the early fathers, it might just be from memory, and they're not getting it exactly correct. But I think he makes an allusion to Malachi 1.11, and he says, For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense will be offered to my name in a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. This Malachi reference is used all the time by the early fathers, and they believe that the Eucharist and the Christian assembly was a fulfillment of this, which I would agree with. This pure offering is Christ, our incorporation into him through repentance, the remission of sins showed forth in the Lord's Supper as a pure sacrifice of thanksgiving. Lutherans, for example, generally don't like the language of sacrifice to God in the service of the church. But I think we can rightly understand that our worship is a sacrifice to God. And at the same time, God is also giving himself to us. I would say it's very Trinitarian. There is love going on in both directions there. And so I think that we can rightly understand that our sacrifice to God is, is acceptable only through the once and for all sacrifice of Christ. We don't re-sacrifice Christ in our worship, but we do offer ourselves, who are the body of Christ, to God in our worship. And we do show forth the Lord's death in communion, as Paul says, until the Lord comes again. And as Paul says, we offer our bodies as living sacrifices. Well, Paul isn't denying the once and for all sacrifice by saying that we offer our bodies as sacrifices. What makes sense of all of, all of this is our union with Christ in this. We also see that men who are at variance with each other need to be reconciled or their sacrifice will be profaned. We see the early fathers taking the teaching from Christ in Matthew 5. Leave your gift there before the altar and go first be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. The importance of being at peace 
with our fellow brothers and sisters is prioritized before giving our sacrifice of thanksgiving and praise. So even in modern liturgical practices, this is still seen in the passing of peace before communion. That's where that liturgical element comes from. And so while the passing of peace is largely just kind of a symbolic thing now, it is rooted in the practice of being reconciled to one another because we've been reconciled to God. And I think <laughs> it's kind of a shortfall of the passing of peace. The passing of peace does show that we are reconciled with each other. But, you know, if there is some conflict between brothers, it might take that whole week prior to talking with the guidance of the elders and or, or just one-on-one -on -one and working through differences before they can be reconciled. In another portion, he says not to fast as the hypocrites, which he means the Jews. He says they fast on Mondays and Thursdays, but Christians should fast on Wednesdays and Fridays. So we see fasting as a part of uh, regular Christian practice, or at least it's being instructed in this letter. We also see the Christians adopting practices that distinguish themselves from the Jews who have rejected Christ. Another such practice would be putting like a Trinitarian doxology at the end of Psalms, and that's a statement of saying that those Psalms are ours. Uh, he instructs them to pray the Lord's Prayer and to pray it three times a day, which I think is excessive. I pray the Lord's Prayer once a day. I think it makes sense to, to pray it once a day. Uh, but we see that praying scriptures is encouraged here. There are more interesting things and good things in this short work. And I guess as a note, we, we need to read these kinds of writings with wisdom and discernment with the prioritization of scriptures. We need the scriptures in us. We need to be familiar with them. We need to be reading them daily so that we can benefit from these non-canonical writings, though they are helpful. These are our fathers in the faith. And while they aren't infallible, there is wisdom. The spirit is in it in some sense. And so these are spirit-filled men. These are our fathers in the church. And so we can honor them by reading these writings and, and benefiting from them. So that's that. And we'll continue on with the rest of these book reviews, but they will be much shorter. I'm just going to kind of give quick synopsis with the the rest of these because it would just take far too long to talk about the, the books that I really enjoyed reading in the past year. Okay. Have a good one. Bye.